1: By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones.
2: Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that come from loss. I'm really so grateful to have you here. Go to my host page at Voice America to connect with me in your favorite way. I really want to hear from you with questions, comments, or to invite me as a speaker or consultant for your organization. I'm welcoming Melanie Damore, an outstanding singer and vocal activist. Melanie believes in the power of voices raised together to bring social and political change. As the subject of the documentary, Stick and Pound, she has helped preserve the African American folk tradition through song and gullah stick pounding. In her 30-year career, she has taught, lectured, mentored, conducted, directed, and inspired both children and adults. She has presented, conducted, and soloed internationally, including Festival 500 in Newfoundland, Canada, and Chorus America. She's adjunct faculty at California Institute for Integral Studies, lead teaching artist for Tempo at University of California, Berkeley, and a featured presenter for Speak Out Institute for Social and Cultural Change. She's performed with Linda Tillery and the Cultural Heritage Choir, Odetta, Richie Havens, Pete Seeger, the Trinity Choir, and Muse Cincinnati Women's Chorus, among others. She truly embodies her own principle— a song can hold you up when there seems to be no ground beneath you. Welcome, Melanie.
3: Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you, Cheryl.
2: I'm um, happy to have you here, too. I'm really intrigued by the term vocal activist. Can you tell us all how that phrase evolved for you, or if it's a found phrase, where where you found it?
3: No, I, it's actually my own thing that I came up with, because I feel like uh, the the human voice, the reaching out in a way that it can hold in a certain way, activates your can activate your spirit, can inspire you. And so I use my voice as that kind of a tool, as a tool for inspiration and for activism.
2: So uh, I imagine that you somebody recognized your beautiful voice early and then what you were going to bring your music to probably... Um, kept changing as you grew up. Would that be accurate?
3: Well, yeah, actually, I mean, I, I went through uh, went through college. There are people I went to college with who've actually never heard me sing because I was mm-hmm. an instrumental major. Wow. So, yeah, my degree is in flute and piano and music history, and there are people that I went to school with who never heard me sing.
2: Because you weren't singing or you weren't singing around them? <laughs> I
3: was an instrumental major, so uh-huh. I, I was doing instrumental music. That's what I was doing.
2: And yeah. so it it must have at some point... Your voice must have come alive to you then,
3: right? Actually, came alive to me long before I went to college, and and um, I've always had a very a very low voice. And both my parents were uh, brilliant uh, singers, uh, but I actually have the lowest voice in my family, including lower than my father's.
2: Mm. Yeah. And do you think that held you back from?
3: Uh, oh no, it no? was <laughs> no, not particularly. I mean, I, I um. I had been told in my life before that, especially from men, that um, I should sing like Linda Ronstadt. That is a quote. Um, (laughs) Because uh, women, first of all, voices should not be as low as mine, even though it is a voice I was born with. And also that women didn't play guitars. Just saying. Um, But uh, I I loved to sing. I didn't really think much about it, but uh, it seemed to be a, a gift that I was that I was given, and I just, I just never really thought about it. I just was singing. Mm-hmm. And when I was in high school, the choir teacher walked by a room and I was helping my friend Sunshine, this was the 60s, to <laughs> sing a song, to sing a song, and the choir director walked by the room and then took a step back and said, why aren't you in choir? And I said, well, because I'm the president of the band. <laughs> and that's why. So then she got me started singing, and, and, and then it was kind of like went from there. So she
2: did not bring that same opinion that you should be singing in a certain register because
3: you were female. No, she was. She was like, we we need that second alto. We need that sound in the in the choir. So, yeah, she didn't want me to change what I was doing.
2: That seems so important to be recognized. You know, to to have someone see what you have. Um, you know, it, it's funny. And, and
3: um, now that you say that, it actually really didn't. My main thing was instruments. I was playing the flute and the piccolo and the bass in the in the band, and, you know, I, I thought it was great that she thought I was a good singer, but really, you know, it wasn't my first love. Musical instruments were my first love.
2: So it stuck, but it wasn't a big impact at the time. It wasn't a
3: big, no, it wasn't a big impact. I You know, I joined the choir just because I joined the choir, but no, it wasn't a, that was not a big turning point for me musically, my... The encouragement of my, my mom and dad was probably the big motivator. The big they had this, Yeah, they had this thing about every Christmas, um, they, and they didn't have any money at all. Grew up in the South Bronx. Every Christmas, they would give me, find some instrument, even if they didn't know what it was, and then they'd give it to me, and then I'd figure out how to play it.
2: Oh, that's very beautiful. Yeah, it was cool. That was cool. Do you still have the instruments?
3: I still have a lot of them, you know, and some of them, have gone by the wayside. It's been a little while, but I sure. do have some of them, yeah. Huh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And how did it, it then happen that you started focusing more on singing?
1: Well, it's... Because it's
2: sort of, I know that's singing and, and um, percussion are what you mostly do now. Is that right?
3: That, yeah, that is true. And then, I, um, and then I started doing a whole solo career and, and being on the women's music circuit. Uh, that happened many, many years ago, Um, and I actually started singing on a a more regular basis when I lived in in Austin, Texas, and I was uh, head chef at a restaurant in Austin during the day and and doing little night gigs at at night. And then I got really involved in theater, musical theater, so I was doing all of that as well.
2: Uh Uh-huh. So it just kind of naturally, you just kind of naturally swung that way at some point. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I like those kind of evolutions where you can see, looking back, that's where you were headed, but it wasn't any dramatic moment. Right. <laughs> it right. just kind of went that way. Right. I think a lot of people who know you would find it surprising that you didn't start out with singing because yeah, I, I so identify you as a singer. So right. it's really interesting to hear that you came to singing by way of instruments.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right.
2: Uh-huh.
3: Yeah, I started studying piano when I was five and, and then picked up all kinds of guitar and the flutes, and all, and I would pick up anything and play it. I, I was sort of fearless and a little crazy that way, and I, and I attribute that to my, to my parents for just giving me an instrument. And sometimes they didn't know what it was, but they said, here, baby, figure it out, and then I would figure it out.
2: I wonder if it even helped that they didn't know how to play it. I, you know, and I They feel were just kind of trusting you to mess around with it and figure yeah, out what it did.
3: Yeah. And I think that was part of the. Because they were definitely vocalists, both my mother and, and father. They didn't, they didn't
2: play, play instruments?
3: Um, my dad played a little bit, uh, played piano, and we all studied it, you know, when we could. But right. they were singers. They were a number, number one thing they were vocalists, no doubt about it.
2: Did yeah. your family sing together?
3: Oh, yeah. 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 What okay. kinds of music? All kinds of music. My mother and father. Um, Started one of the first black theater companies in Anchorage in the early 60s. And my dad joined the military to get us out of the South Bronx, which is where we lived. And um, music was a thing I know that kind of held him together. He did two tours in Vietnam and Korea. And, you know, he was raised in in, in South Carolina, you know, having to grow up around the Klan and all of that kind of madness. Sure, and I think sure. that that music and singing really... Really carried him carried him through, um, and my grandfather, you know, my dad's dad was a Baptist minister deep in the South, trying to get people to vote and everything. And the Klan would burn down parts of the house, you know, sort of periodically. And uh, that's what my father grew around, grew up around. But he has uh, he's still alive. My father and my mother both always talked with us about not identifying a whole group of people by the actions of one or two. So you know, we we had to deal with a lot of racism and, and and things like that, but they always dealt with situations as individuals, and individual people, individual situations. And I think that that really really helped me to be the person that I am today.
2: I can I can sort of hear uh echoes of a lot of uh your core beliefs and ways of looking at things from what you're telling me about your parents yeah, yeah. and that's you know, not uh, always the case sometimes no. people have to leave their parents to find their own I, values but it sounds as if you didn't have to do that
3: no and I and I lost my mother at uh, at 19 my mother was only 43 when she passed away mm-hmm. so that was the first big, uh, my first big um, connection with, with grief, although I had lost grandparents before and people that I grew up with. But my mother um, died in 1973, and, um, and I'm the oldest of five. Mm-hmm. And my father and my mother were really the best of friends. And they sang together, they danced together, they were corny as could be, you know, kids can't deal <laughs> with that. But oh, they used to sing in the house all the time, and they did theater together. So we always had people at the house, once they got us out of New York City, they really w- were able to have to make an environment that they felt was was healthy and thriving and safe for us. Um, and we always had music around. We always had there were always theater people around because my mother and father did theater, and um, they exposed me to a lot a lot of things. And I had all of that connection. Is my mom, and then she she died when I was nineteen. She was twenty three. She died of breast cancer. Mm. Of and that di-
2: means she probably was ill for some some time before well, that.
3: Well, she was diagnosed in nineteen seventy. Of course, they didn't know anything, and um, and then she died uh, in nineteen seventy three at the age of forty three. And my father was a complete wreck. He really, for four months, all he could do was was cry, and he never made any sound when he cried. Tears just fell out of his eyes. Mm-hmm. And the night before my mother died I wrote a song called The Lady of Peace um, which I sang at my mother's funeral. Could
2: you sing a bit of it for us? Um,
3: sure. Uh, I don't have my guitar here but it, uh, it's uh... Maybe I can play it for you. Sorry. Yeah, um, yeah, I can play a little bit for you. Right. I don't know if you'll
2: be able to hear this. Hear that? Yep, I sure do. It's a little
3: bit of it. Uh, Sorry. Father, father, in your house above, shower, shower with your love. The lady of peace. So it sort of goes like that.
2: Oh, beautiful. And,
3: you know, I was 19. I was standing probably about three feet from her coffin, and I sang it. And, you know, I I think that that was really the moment when I realized the power of the human voice for comfort to... Be able to hold a space for grief and for loss and whatever you're feeling. And I mean, I think that was probably the first time in my life that I sang in an occasion like that. And, and it's probably led me to doing um, singing at bedsides all these years later. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, because there are lots of people, anybody in my family, who couldn't even believe that I could do it. You know, but I sang, this, I wrote the song the night before she died, I knew she was going to die. And the song has pretty much stayed the same ever since. And I have a new policy. It's, it's not new now, but uh, when I sing that in concert, I, I say to people, you know, if your mom is still here, if you give me her, their phone number, your phone number, or their phone number, I will call them and sing the song for them while they're still here. Mm. Because I like that idea of I never got to sing that for my mother while she was actually here. So, And people will do that. I, I've gone to people's houses and sung it for their mom or on Mother's Day, they say, here's my mom's number, call her up. I've done
2: it, you know, a few times over the years. That, that really connects with this kind of impulse towards others that comes out of grief sometimes, you know, when you understand that place, mm-hmm. it activates something in you. Speaking of activating. Sure. Uh, that's what I hear in that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And such a beautiful gift for all those people you call. To, yeah. to hear that kind of beauty.
3: Yeah, folks, they, they call me up and I've gone to people's houses or I've gone to you know, whatever to do it because, you know, I I think one of the things about, you know, when we're dealing with grief is one of the things that people grieve the, the most is not only the loss but the fact that they didn't ever, that they didn't tell the person that they're missing how much they love them. So my whole thing is, you know, I would rather sing for you and your mom now while they're here, and you can look them in the face and say, I love you. And
2: Absolutely.
3: I think that's really, really important. Really important.
2: And you know that is important if you've ever missed the opportunity to do it. Right. Uh, there job. are a few opportunities I've missed that I that I wish I had not.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. Taken other opportunities. That's how we learn, I guess. Mm-hmm.
3: Exactly. Um,
2: but... I I really resonate with what you're saying about that. And I imagine every time you sing it for other people, there's a way that you're singing it for your mother, since it's her song. Would that be true?
3: You know, it's funny. It's, I think, you know, for me, my mother now, since it's been, I mean, I have been alive longer than my mother was alive. And that was an interesting thing for all of my siblings. I'm the oldest of five. When they all hit their 43rd year, they all called me up, and I knew. I knew that on their 43rd birthday, I was going to get a call from them Mm. because I knew that that was going to be a really big milestone for them. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, my mother was only 43 when she died. Yeah, you know. And my dad was was forty five maybe, and he never remarried.
2: Hmm.
3: He never remarried. And and I asked him about that and he said, Well you know, honey, he said, I had twenty years with your mother, and he said those twenty years will last me for the rest of my life.
2: Oh, that, that's he's, love, he's, yeah. isn't it?
3: <laughs> yeah. He's eighty eight now.
2: Wow. Yeah. It's time for our first break. I, I'm really enjoying this and when we come back I want to hear more um Let's just pick up where we're leaving off. Um, Listeners, you can go to Good Grief, the host page at at, uh, Voice America, and you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. To reach Melanie, go to M-E-L-A-N-I-E-D-E-M-O-R-E.com.
5: Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance, and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but nine out of ten pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word Talk Radio to
1: 96362. Mm-hmm.
2: you can find me at Voice America at my website, weatherandgrief.com. And today I'm speaking with Melanie Damore, a self-described vocal activist. Um, before the break we were talking about your mother and the song you wrote for her yeah. the night before she died. And um it it seems so much at the heart of what you're what you're doing now. Um it seems like the beginning point maybe. Uh, is that how you experience it?
3: Well, you know, I, I think so also. I was, I was 19 years old. I was uh, just getting ready to start my sophomore year in college, and I was a music major. And um, and it was really interesting because I, I sang at her funeral. I was the oldest. I had to deal with making all the arrangements because my father just could not. And my mother knew that my father was going to be like that. And about nine months before she died, she wrote me a letter. And said, you're to open this on the day that I die. And she knew that she was going to. And I, you know, my mother was a very straightforward, really an amazing, amazing person. And so on that day, when my father came home from the hospital, we had been at the hospital the night before. And I opened the door, and he couldn't say where. Tears were just streaming down his face. I led him into the house, and I sat him down. And my other sisters and brothers were all there. I went to the top of the closet and got the letter. And proceeded to call the priests, all the relatives in New York, and everybody all around the country, made the funeral arrangements and all of that stuff, because he was immobilized with grief. He was immobilized. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, mom died in August. I had just turned 19 in June. So, so and you August, were a
2: new 19.
3: New 19, absolutely. And, um. It was, really, it was really something, talking to my relatives all across and calling my people in New York and trying to arrange sleeping arrangements for all these people coming from all over the place. Because Daddy was just... We went, I went to the funeral home because he couldn't do anything. He just, And I took my mom's letter with me because he, he, all he could do was cry. And he never made a sound, just tears coming out of his eyes. It was really, really something so
2: what were the what was the age spread of your of your uh, siblings at that point
3: very close my youngest brother eric was was nine so it was 10 years and then it was my myself then my brother frank so i was just 19 kenny was 17 i think or 18 17 then my other sister was 16 and my other sister was like 14 or something and I was actually in the process before that summer. I was going to be moving out of the house. But when mom died, you know, daddy had five children and four of us were teenagers. I couldn't leave him with that. Sure. He, just, he was a mess. He just was a mess. You know, here's a guy. He had already done two tours in Vietnam and Korea, and he was laid low mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. my mom's death. Just laid low. Yeah.
2: Well, it doesn't seem shocking given the way you describe their relationship. You know, they just sound like they were entwined in such a beautiful way. Yeah. So it must have been like an amputation or, you know, losing a part of himself.
3: It really, really really was. He, Uh bless his heart, I mean, you know, he he is now, he's going to be 89 on his next birthday. And so he's had all of these years um, without my mom. And yet he had felt that those 20 years he had with my mother. Would last him his whole life, and he's, and that's exactly what he did. He never remarried, and any of that. My mother was his person.
2: Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh huh.
3: You know, and, and he's got. There, we have. We have a very uh, long life gene. So for a long time, he has been living without my mom. Yeah.
2: Do you feel he's made a a, a life for
3: himself? Mm-hmm. He has. Yeah,
2: a- it hasn't held him back from that. Just from no, nope, nope, connected nope. again in that way.
3: He had other ways of being connected, and he has five very unique children. Of course, actually now there's only four of us left. But um, which leads to the the next. I mean, I I in all those years since Mama passed, I I have sung at many bedsides and for many people who were going through some sort of something, whether it's their own personal transition of, of death or whatever it is, or their own person, personal transition of something that's really just sort of floored them. You know, I've sung in a lot of different ways and used my voice in a lot of different ways. And, um, you know, I had the pleasure of four years ago when my middle sister, Drina, died, I sat up with her for five nights and six days and sang to her until she took her last breath.
2: Ah,
3: was one of the most extraordinary things in my life. You know? I can imagine. Yeah. I think What, what, what I,
2: kinds of things did you sing to her, Moni?
3: Well I, I wrote a lot of things on the spot. I would just sing to her some of her favorite her favorite songs and, and things songs now that um, that I just it's just actually on my, my, my latest C D which I recorded in her honor. And it's called "In the Mother House," and most of the songs on there are songs that I wrote for her or as a response to her passing mm-hmm. or while she was passing, mm-hmm. and they've become part of the now uh of the rep- repertoire of the threshold choir singers, which was begun by Kate Munger uh, thirteen years ago, so they sing a lot of music that i that had come from my experience of being with Trina. Yeah. Is there um,
2: something you might be able to share to give the listeners an idea?
3: Um, There's there one. Um, I'll sing you the one that I wrote called um, "On the Wings of Grace." And the odd thing is, is that the song came to me at probably about the third day that I was there, and I and I sat up with her pretty much all night when I was there, and it was just me and her in her hospice room, and because it was a thing that I could do. You know, I'm the oldest, and I. None of my other siblings could do that. That wasn't their spot. And I think this is a really important thing for people dealing with grief, is that not everybody can do everything. Yes. You know, it is really important to know what it is that you can do and then not get upset with somebody else because they can't do that thing. Uh, I so agree. You know, I mean, we think that we have to be able to do everything and we don't. You know, I mean... Some people are really, really good at dealing with all the details and talking to the doctors and doing all that. And some people are really good at being able to deal with other members of the family. And some people are really good at just being there. But not everybody is really good at everything, and it shouldn't be <laughs> that way. And you would save yourself a whole lot of hassle if you didn't judge people because they couldn't do the same things as you.
2: You know what I mean? I absolutely do. And there's a way that if you take everybody... In most families or groups, there's enough of, you know, There's a, everybody has their role. There's a part for everyone to play, and they're not the same parts.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of the problems come when you try to think that somebody ought to behave, be behaving in a different way than you think they should be behaving. Yes. And sometimes they're only doing what they can do. That's and right. Only doing what they can do. But um, this song, uh, On the Wings of Grace, I just remember standing there by her bedside and, you know, she, she died. She was in San Antonio, Texas and it was hotter than the holy hinges of hell. Excuse my <laughs> And it's interesting. She died in August. My mother also died in August. So mm-hmm. August is kind of a rough month for for all of our family. But So the song goes oh, like this. Um, Gently I go Softly I know Nothing to fear Spirit is here Love be my guide Lift me, I'll fly Far from this place On the wings of grace and that's how it goes.
2: Yeah. I'm
3: transported. <laughs> you know, and that I,
2: song has wings.
3: <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I and I couldn't I got as far as um, um Love be my guide, lift me I'll fly and I could not the next words wouldn't come until after she died, and then it was far from this place on the wings of grace, and that's how the song came. And that's and what was uh, happening. <laughs> yes, it was happening. Yeah. And, you know, I think it was – I I really experienced a lot being in Indrina's, uh, Indrina's room when she passed. And, and also, I realized, you know, my gift for conducting and leading groups and everything because, you know, family, oh, boy, that is – it can be messy, 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 messy. Indeed. And I had, you know, relatives uh, from all over the place and and people – can really get bogged down with how they should be and what they should be doing and how blah, blah, blah. And the day, the day that I felt that Trina was going to die, I had a lot of my relatives in and I gathered them all in Trina's room because I knew some of them, they had to go, they had to go work, they had to go deal with children. So I felt that knowing Trina as I did, that she would not want them to be tripping. So I did sort of like a little family service there. We sang, gave them all a chance to just say goodbye and then be able to go. And there were times in those days that I was uh, staying at hospice with Drina that I would leave the room because I felt like her spirit, her energy needed space and needed to have my energy out of the room. And, um, and you could feel that. Oh, Completely. And I'm not a woo-woo girl. I was born and raised in the South Bronx in New York City. So, I, <laughs> you know, I'm not a woo-woo person. But I could feel that. And there were times when I felt like my energy, the best way that I could be there, Padrina, was to be on the other side of the door. And and I just, just knew that. And it would be times when people would be coming in, and I would just let one or two people go in there, you know. And I had a, a very interesting experience with my cousin one day. My cousin and my father and I were in Drina's room. And my father did, you know, talked about someone who had really hurt Drina really, really bad. And mentioned something about this person might be coming to the funeral. And I said, in Drina's room with my cousin there, I said, listen to me, old man. If that person comes anywhere near here, there's going to be a problem. He is not to be around any member of this family ever. And I looked at him. I said, do you hear me, old man? And he was so taken aback. He said, yes. Later, my cousin said to me, he said, I cannot believe that you said that to your father in Drina's room. And I said to him, I said, you know what? This is where families get themselves really messed up. They we're so busy, things behind closed doors and all that. And I said, even though Drina is not on this plane right now, I want her to know that I have her back. That I am here and that I am not going to let somebody, that I know that she would not want to have anything to do with. It. I said, she knows that I have her back. And my cousin, he looked at me and he said, I never, ever thought about that. I said she knows that I, will, that I am there for her. I am, you know, the person I had her um, medical power attorney all that. She knows that I have her back, whether she can speak for herself or not. I said, she knows.
2: Ready to go to the mat. Yeah. And I
3: said, I said uh-uh, I'm not doing this behind closed doors thing. You know, I, I can't act like she's not here. She still is here. And I have her back, and that is my job. And it's also
2: something, uh, maybe I'm reading in, but it seems like something between you and you. You would not feel good with yourself if you didn't do that.
3: Uh, well, it's, 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 it, not, it's not even so much that. It's just, it's just like this is just... It must be done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm the oldest, like, you know, are you kidding? Yeah. yeah. No, baby, uh-uh, I don't play and my and I, you know, and my cousin, he was really, really shocked And I told him, I said, Well, well how do we stand up, we stand up for each other only when it's convenient? Mm. You know? And yeah, this is my dad, but you know right now, I'm the one that is standing here beside my my sister. I'm the one. And there are times when that trumps my my connection with Drina and and as the guardian which has always been a part of my life I did that with all of my siblings I was always their guardian in that way all my life I said you know that trumps the fact that he's my dad I don't care what that that trumps it and um and it was I think it was a big big shock to my cousin but he he got it you know he got it it's like if we would just go ahead and confront these things and deal with them when they happen you know yeah, because I took care of it. It was taken care of.
2: Well, and your the way you tell the story, your dad knew that was your job as well.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, it doesn't sound as if he was insulted. No. He, he just accepted that that's what needed to be.
3: That's exactly right. He did. Yeah.
2: He did. So your cousin had a problem. Well, that your just, father didn't, or or a uh, confusion that your father didn't have
3: apparently. Well, I think he was he he. He is of the old school. He's of the school of thought where, you know, you discuss these things away from, you know, out of the room of the person or away yeah. from the person. And I'm like, you know what? First of all, is dying. Mm. She knows what's going on. For sure. And, you know, I think one of the things is it's hard for people. It's so hard to let go. It's so hard to to uh, to make that. To make that separation, it's so hard, I think, sometimes not to impose what we think is right behavior, you know, or how we should be instead of how it really is. And I realized, you know, with when I had all my family members in there that day that Drina died, I thought, everything is cool with Drina. This is all for us. You know, Drina's <laughs> going to trip. If you're not there, Drina's not going to be tripping about that. She just not right, you know? and you know, Drina and I actually we did the whole planning of her memorial long before she died.
2: And and your mother thought ahead like that too. Yep. Huh? she sure did. So that's that's common to at least mm-hmm. those two women of your family yeah. to to kind of manage that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it was it was amazing, really. Yeah. Totally. Hmm.
2: I'm I'm really moved hearing about her and and you and how you walked that together.
3: She was, she was She was something, you know. And um, we were not close as as, as kids, because hmm. um, I was the oldest, and my two sisters, my sister Drina and Karen, they're very best friends, and my brothers are very best friends. And well, sports. you
2: you. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we're going to a break soon and I just wanted to say you you uh it sounds as if you found your close place through mm-hmm. through the end of her life. Yeah. Um. So we're going to another break. It's it's Great. flying by for me. Um yes. yeah. <laughs> in the, in the few minutes go to my host page, uh to my website, weatherandgrief.com I'm available for individuals and and couples therapy in California and for speaking and consulting. Don't forget to go to Melanie DeMore's website, (laughs) melaniedemore.com.
5: Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96362. Mm-hmm.
2: you can find me at voiceamerica.com. I'm here with Melanie Damore and before the break we were talking about gatekeeping when you uh when you're participating in in someone's passing um how sometimes you're called upon to just hold the gate. And I was very moved by that. Both and and the differences between the way you did that at 19 and then the way you did that later on with your sister, yeah, right. uh, the similarities and the differences, yeah? Yeah. D- did you think about that consciously? I actually,
3: I, I didn't. I mean, I've done so many, in between then and now, and between my mother's passing when I was 19 and Drina's passing when I was 55, you know, I've done a lot of different kinds of things in terms of singing and music, healing and everything, and... And I, I learned a lot of things along that way. I mean, you you do have to be the gatekeeper, and sometimes it's the only thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, there's a song that I that, that uh, Threshold sings, and actually that I do in every concert that I do, called Standing Stone, that it is about being that mountain. And I always introduce this song, and I wrote it for a friend of mine who was dealing with very, very, very severe cancer, who, by the way, is extremely well now, but... And I I didn't know what else to do. And so I knew that I could not change it. I couldn't turn it into something that it was not. I couldn't take it away. You know, you can't. Sometimes you can't throw enough money at it. It's not going to be anything. And all you can do is stand. Be there for that person no matter what. You know, maybe you can't do anything, but they know. They can sense that you are there. So the name of the song is called Standing Stone. And it's very simple. It goes... I will be your standing stone I will stand by you and that's the song it's the actually the opening song on in the mother house and I usually do it and I talked about that idea of how do we what do we do what can we do for each other and sometimes we just, you sit there beside them, you stand there beside them, and no matter what, you're there. That's what you do. Just be oh, there. Just be there. And when I, I did this the other night, I was doing a concert in Orchestra Hall in Minneapolis. place was packed, four balconies, 2,000 people. And my thing is, is that I teach the audience, and I say, when you feel it, stand. And by the end of the time, we sing it. And Every person was on their feet. Huh. And I say to them, who do you know, this is the vocal activist part of me, that needs to be held in song? Everybody needs to be held up. And I always say, and this goes for people who are caregivers and loved ones by somebody's bed or whatever it is, you have to include yourself in that. You, got, you can't stand up or sit beside somebody else if you don't know, stand up and sit beside yourself. You have to include yourself.
2: Absolutely.
3: You know. And I don't know when we got that idea that we have to be completely ragged out and dragged out and that means that we're really a good person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: but probably a bad <laughs> caregiver. <laughs> yeah, I mean you know, really. Come on. Tapped out.
3: <laughs> yeah. Like that's the only way that's that's the only thing that makes it legitimate. Well, if you're not taking care of yourself, you know, that don't do to anybody any good, for
2: sure. That's that's an irony I feel, you know. Um obviously I took care of my wife for a long, 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 long time. Yeah. And yeah. uh that was certainly a lot of things to do, you know, yeah. a lot of caregiving. But it became clear very quickly that if I didn't take care of myself you know, I'd hurt my back, or I'd get a cold, or, you know, mm-hmm. you just have to. It becomes very obvious, mm-hmm. and I think that's what you're talking about. Exactly. I'm much, I'm much kinder to myself now
3: mm-hmm.
2: out of that experience.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, when I was with, when I was, uh, with Ree Rie is her nickname, with Drina, you know, I, um, I had a, a friend, I didn't live in San Antonio, but I had a friend of mine, a very dear friend, who would come, and take me to just say we're going to go and eat somewhere. We're going to get you out of the room, and because I also knew that that was good for me, I also knew it was good for Drina. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was really it was wonderful that I, I realized the way this, that I was taking care of too when I was before I came to Texas. When Drina, when I got the call, I was at. Uh, uh, Six-Day Women's Singing Retreat in the mountains in Taos, New Mexico. And Drina was, was sick. I knew that this was happening. The last time I talked to her was the first day that I got up there to the mountain. And the phone rang in the dome where the phone never rings. It just, it just doesn't ring. because you know it's, And for some reason, which we all know how those things are. <laughs> and I said, Drina, I'm here getting ready to sing with all of these women. And we're going to all be singing for you. Because some of the people were from Threshold. And, and Drina loves Threshold. And they really held me and I let them hold me up while I was teaching them. I let them hold me. And it gave me it gave me strength and energy to do those five nights and six days when the temperature was one hundred and ten degrees in San Antonio and being in Texas, which is a place I do not like. And but their their care for me in their way gave me the energy, allowed me to be able to do what I did. And I think that that's, sometimes I think caregivers and loved ones, sometimes we don't let people care for us in the way that they can.
2: What a teaching for them, too, that you allowed that, that you didn't have to be the the person who didn't need the help giving the help, but you could also be the receiver.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I, I tell you, You know, it just, it really, really gave me, took a little bit of the shake, the wobbliness out of my knees, you know, to be, because I could feel that they also had my back. And I think that that's the thing about being a standing stone, is that if you have other people around, you know that you're not, that you're not standing alone, and that there are people everywhere standing for somebody.
2: And if we're not now we will be eventually. Absolutely. Because that's life. Yeah. 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 It's it's amazing to me how uh how hard the culture fights against that and yet how much a relief it is for most people when once they accept it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. We
2: we worry but then when the thing is actually there often it's uh um Life becomes more real in a way, I guess.
3: Well, it becomes more real and more immediate. And, you know, we don't make time and space for grieving, especially in, you know, Western culture. It's like, you know, well, buck up, get over it, you know, things will get better. But, you know, that's when you're right in the middle of it, then that stuff matters. People just need to be able to be where they are. And and I love the, the tradition and the Jewish tradition of allowing that all your job is to do is just sit there. Yes, and more. And we will bring you food. We'll take care of all those details so that you can experience your grief, experience that that person that was so loved, and and not shy away from the fact that yeah, you're you're hurt. I really appreciate that about about Jewish culture. I really, really do. I think yes, it's smart,
2: <laughs> very smart. I also like the one year, and there there are uh, Native tra- traditions like mm-hmm. this, too, that you do something to mark the end of the first year.
3: Exactly.
2: Um, so that you're really not considered put back together during the time when grief is kind of knocking you around <laughs> in the most intense right. period. I, I agree completely.
3: And I, nobody tells you that you should get over it. Nobody
2: tells you, exactly. I
3: know. You know, it's just, this is, that, that your your main job right now is grieving. That's your job. All the rest of it, uh-uh. this is your main job, and we're going to make it as comfortable for you to do that as possible, so you don't have to think about making food, or whatever it is, this is what you're going to do. And I just think that's just, it's just so sensible, really. You know, we, we don't give ourselves enough time to, to really walk through these things, but then... You know, we've lost all those things about rites of passage, whether it's coming of age or, you know, uh, or dying or birthing. We just don't have space enough for those natural occurrences in life. Uh,
2: you're you're making me think of um, or inviting me to think of, you know, uh, since I had so long to prepare, mm-hmm. making a decision, I was going to get what I, whatever I needed mm-hmm. for that year.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And grief was not a horrible experience whatsoever under those conditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But sometimes when people are kind of forcing themselves back into the box quickly, it is a horrible experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So, I mean, there may have been a lot of aspects of that, but I do think there's something about surrendering to grief. And I think Uh that's what you're talking about, just just saying, here I am, (laughs) you know, I'm going to experience it. And yeah. will let that happen.
3: You know, it's funny. And I, and I learned about that really in the hard one. When Mama when died and I was still in college, I think that year, the year after my mother died, I had one day off. I mean, I dove into my work. And I went into the, the music department one day to Judy Gibson, who was the chairman. And I was just a wreck. I said, Judy, I, I, I know I have a big paper due and everything, and I just can't. I need to go away for a few days. And she said, I have been waiting for you to say that. She oh. said, forget about the paper. Go. She's a chairman of the department. She actually played organ at Mama's service. And she said, you know, she said, you're just 19. You have to take time to just let yourself feel these things. Go. Don't worry about the paper. Go. What an
2: amazing gift she gave you.
3: Oh, it's it's extraordinary. Because you would
2: have gone anyway, but you would have been stressed out about it, perhaps. Yeah,
3: and she, because I was so worried about, you know, wanting to make sure I have all of my, my, um, uh, things in order, and she said, that doesn't matter. Ah. She said, go.
2: Makes me want to cry.
3: <laughs> yeah, she, she, she really, she, and it was great, and it just, I, it was kind of like I had been holding my breath, because Mama died in August, and this was probably in January.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And plus, one of the things that pushed me over the side was that one of my classmates, this is in January, called me up, she calls me up, and she says, Mel, you have to come over to the house. And I said, why? She said, my brother just shot himself, and he's lying here in the kitchen. I was like, Oh what? Goodness. I said, call the ambulance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it was like, I was like, I don't know if I can take any more of this. And that had happened. And then Mama died in August. And I think in October, I'm on my way to school, and the news is on. and they And they talked about this. Um, head-on collision, and there were three people in the car, and they were all people that I'd gone to high school with. So I was like, I was like through. Well, yeah. it's good that she let you go. <laughs> That's all I can say. She just, you know, Judy Gibson, she just yeah, she was just waiting for it. She said, "I, I, you had to come to me to tell me that, yep. because yes. I knew you needed to do this months ago. Yeah, but you know, it doesn't work until you have your own realization." And she, Judy Gibson, was an amazing person. She changed my life in a lot of ways. But that
2: I'm so glad you told that and I'm glad you told it at the end because uh you know leaving with some permission. I wonder if there's I wonder if you could just sing a little bit of I'm sending you light to oh, to end with.
3: Sure. Sure. Um I'm sending you light. Yep. Yeah. One of those songs. I am sending you light. To heal you, to hold you I am sending you light To hold you in love I walk the path with you Go slow, dear one, don't hurry I'll go just like you need to go There is no need to worry so I am sending you love to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you love to hold you in love.
2: Thank you, Melanie, so much for being here today.
3: Thank you, Cheryl.
2: Next week, join me for Robert Lesoin and Marilyn Chappell, Their book, Unfinished Conversation, is a memoir about uh, Robert's loss of his best friend to suicide and also a guide about how to go through a loss like that. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. Don't forget to go to my page at Voice America and my website. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm